Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film Fives with me, Russell Guyver, and my co-host, Phil Newman. Hello, Phil. Hello. Good evening. It's been Good a while. Be back. Back. It's been a couple yes. of months, isn't it? We've been yes. we've both been very busy on our latest topic, though. We, Absolutely. I've made more notes for this than any other podcast we've ever done, and I normally write quite a lot of notes. So the, Apologies if this goes on for bloody ages. Yeah, this has the potential to go on for ages. And if it does, yeah. you'll be hearing the first part of two parts. You will, of course, already know this by now, if that's the case, because you would have yeah. seen it you were looking at your uh, your feed. But um, it may not be, because the one thing with, with our subject tonight is he hasn't made a huge number of films. Um, they're all classics up to a, a point, so certainly all the modern era ones. And um, we may well have the same choices, which yeah, always we've only got a dozen or so to choose from, haven't we? So yeah, exactly. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, so this is the first of one or the first of two on the subject of Mr. Stanley Kubrick, one of I think we can both agree one of the true greats of his art form. Uh, he he really is uh, yeah. a top level film director. No longer with us, passed away a fair few years ago now, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. And, um, but he he's left a legacy of absolutely fantastic films and is, as you've mentioned with your comment about notes, a highly interesting and detailed and... Um, Everything he did, he did, he took very, very seriously, didn't he? Oh. I mean, he took a while to make a film, but that wasn't meaning that he was sat on a beach no, <laughs> in between exactly. them. He was hard at work. I mean, he yeah got involved in pretty much every area of the, of the kind of the, the look, the costumes, the scripts, the production, the the sets, the script, sure everything. Yeah, I'm sure as you'll say in your uh, in your uh, bit about Kubrick in a minute, uh, you covered so many genres as well. So every aspect of that as well. Yeah. It wasn't for for lack of uh, humour, because there's humour in his films as well, which we'll talk about, no doubt, on a number of occasions uh, throughout. So he's not serious, completely serious in that regard, which is good. Um, but let's let's um, hear what you've got to say. I mean, you knew a fair bit about this one. It's not one of the ones I've uh, obscure. No. I've picked I'll, out. I'll, I'll be honest, I went into this, obviously knowing that he was a bit of a genius and very, very clever, but I didn't really love really love any of his films i thought they were all technically astounding and very very good and i'm still not sure if i really love any of them because his characters are difficult to like but you can't help but be sort of swept away by just the the genius of every single element of the film so i wouldn't call any of them I, i would call a lot of his films 10 out of 10 films for statements of art but for me personally they're more like an eight out of ten because some of it I I don't get don't quite get on with. I'm, I'm putting that out there now. Can I just say as well, or can I ask? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. But you'd you'd seen the majority of his the vast majority, yeah. yeah. Um, because I because for me, um, and we'll get into this a bit more later on, but um, I think I've liked every one of his films more the second time than the first. And I definitely, I mean, yeah, I mean, I watched a lot of his films when I was late teens, early 20s, and you're getting into cinema and you're tracking down all the classics. And I don't think I was kind of, I don't want to say emotionally mature, (laughs) because that sounds pretentious, but I don't think I was kind of quite ready for everything that's going on in these films. And now watching it in my, these films in my late 40s, I definitely understand a lot more that's going on. Um, and I definitely appreciate them a lot more than I, I did the last time that I, I watched them. Yeah, for yeah. sure. 
I mean, you've probably seen the um, the famous documentary of Life and Pictures, which I finally got around to watching just yeah, now. Yeah, I watched that. Yeah, um, which is which typical. It's kind of classic Kubrick. It is two hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah, it was way over two hours, so it seemed appropriate. They'd have a long documentary on him, and yeah, there's a number of people. I think um, Sidney Pollack said something about it. Woody Allen definitely said something about it in relation to two thousand and one that he didn't like it the first. So it's not only they liked it more the second time; they actually didn't like it at all the first yeah. time and he's come to now find that a, a classic and an innovative um work of art there's just like- so much going on in every single frame you can't appreciate it from a single viewing hmm. definitely well let's let's talk about him then phil what have so you got? yes well, i'll do a very quick bio and then we'll go in so born in new york in 1928 and raised in the bronx he was an average student with an interest in literature photographer Photographer, photography and film from a young age. Um, he started making short films on small budgets. I think his parents were fairly affluent and they kind of gave him a bit of money to help out. And he threw himself into kind of all aspects of film production and designing his own special effects, his own getting his friends to be in the films. So in the, when he left school, he worked as a photographer in the late 40s and early 50s um, before he made his first sort of proper film in 1952 fear and desire um it's probably not one that we'll be discussing i mean it's about an hour long it's about four soldiers trapped behind enemy lines that must confront their fears and desires um war is a is the topic that he comes back to the most in all of his films war and crime i think he likes putting people in difficult situations and emotional situations and seeing seeing what can happen um his first major Hollywood film, The Killing, came out in 1956. We obviously discussed that at quite a lot of length when we did our heist movie special. Um, I mean, thinking about it, he was what, about 27 or so, 26, 27, when he yeah. made that film. Yeah, it's just, it's just you, you compare that to any other film at the time. It, it's unbelievable. Um, a dislike of Hollywood and a concern about American crime levels made him move to the UK in 1961, where he stayed for the rest of his life. He had a big mansion in Hertfordshire where he wrote, researched, edited and managed the production of all of his films with complete and utter artistic control. I mean, not many directors can say they have the level of control that he did. Uh, The kind of one thing that's most associated with him is his demanding perfectionism, asking for many, many takes of, of a shot and upsetting quite a lot of his cast in doing that. I'm sure we'll be going into that a bit more. But he's also known for breaking new ground in cinematography. Um, His only single Oscar was for Best Visual Effects for for 2001. Um, The only other thing that kind of strings a lot of his films together, as you mentioned, he bounces around genres, but pretty much all of his films, I think with the exception of Spartacus, are based on books. He would read through novels and look, kind of look for inspiration on, on kind of what he wanted to kind of get into next. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think we'll get into the rest of it as we start working our way through it, shall we? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got to say, I've I've seen, I think I've seen all of his films. Um, I can't remember if I've seen um, Day of the Fight, which is a, his first one, which is effectively it's a short a, film, I think, isn't it? Find documentary, yeah, yeah. Had a real fight. So he, he had a buddy of his from, I think, from uh, uh, from the, from New York, who he took along, and they did they did the shots. So when Kubrick was loading, he'd come in and do the other shots. So that was kind of like that's just a testing ground. And I think, yeah, Hiller's Kiss, which uh, I can 
comfortably say is not in my top five. Yeah, uh, no, he's, no, however, no, no, no. a very interesting film. I mean, that is only an hour and seven minutes long, which is uh, atypical of the man's later work, for sure. Yeah. And Strange Love, actually, is only about an hour 35, which is another unusuality in terms of running time. But Killer's Kiss, an hour and seven minutes, but is uh, I think you see the first flourishes of a really good director because he had um, played around with the shadow and light. It is essentially a film noir in every respect. There's a, a femme fatale, a gangster and his and his yeah. and you've got a you know your kind of like your typical B movie hammy looking kind of main guy who's not famous playing a role of the the main protagonist who gets caught up with the girl and it's it, it's a pleasingly short film in the sense that it's actually quite nice to have a film that's that short of that genre um, but he he plays around with the shadow and light brilliantly beautiful lighting on the film and that's in a very early stage and it shows what's what's to come really you, you can tell that he he you know studied photography a lot and he was really one of those guys that would do the perfect shot and yeah. wouldn't rest until he'd actually captured it the light had to be right that you know but every, everything about it had to be had to be sort of spot on you mentioned he's a per- uh, perfectionist and he was very much about meticulous detail <clears throat> and he clearly had um excuse me had a very good understanding of the art form even from an early age you could tell his notions and his concepts of how to set up a frame uh, were there and a lot of that is based on the fact his dad was a keen photographer he took that up as well and he played around with it and he in his earlier years he was as you said he was born in the Bronx and he used to make ends meet really by um uh, doing kind of odd jobs um playing chess for money yes uh, in in the local parks and also entering competitions and sometimes winning money that way again for chess and then also doing um occasional bits of short film and other stuff yeah. that sell he famously uh won attention first of all for the president roosevelt's uh death scenario when when roosevelt died there was a national mourning going on and capturing the mood of the nation he took a picture of a news seller who was sitting looking forlorn and gloomy leaning on his arm i think right next to yeah where the, the headline yeah the headline and it was a it was an iconic image i mean one that, you, that people may know actually without yeah. realizing it's kubrick uh, a famous photograph of american culture and life at that time and that he sold that to look magazine and that he ended up selling other stuff so he was making his way scraping around with various yeah. different bits and pieces um but he uh yeah he, bit by bit he made his name he got um his, his dad actually cashed in a life assurance policy at one point to so help buy a camera yeah I can't camera and to help fund I think it was Fear and Desire which is the first kind of feature length probably I'd say proper yeah. film but I think it was with Killer's Kiss that he started to show a few flourishes and he managed to get enough funding for The Killing which is his first what you would really call a proper film yeah the length um really good narrative and properly assembled with some recognizable actors and that kind of thing and that's where he really started to make his mark and as i mentioned before uh, the killing came second in my list of heist films i think if i remember correctly Um, it was on my list as well yeah yeah whether it'll feature in these five who knows because i mean he's it's up against some pretty stiff competition i'll I'll, I'll do a very very quick we don't want to go into detail but I, i mean no other director has got a kind of um score like him on imdb so if we start with the, i mean this is normally imdb it averages down quite low it's very rare you get a film above seven or above eight at yeah. all 
Essentially, if there's anything so, above seven, it's very well worth watching. So a quick run through his films. The Killing, 7.9. Paths of Glory, 8.4. Spartacus, 7.9. Lolita, 7.5. And then we then it just gets ridiculous. Uh, Doctor Strange Love, 8.4. 2001 Space Odyssey, 8.3. Clockwork Orange, 8.3. Barry Lyndon, 8.1. The Shining, 8.4. Full Metal Jacket, 8.3. Oh, no one coming in would be a eyes wide shut at the end, 7.5. No, no one else can post a CV like that at all in cinema. It's utterly insane, isn't it? And it's Mark of the Man. And uh, he, as you said, he didn't, he didn't make films very quickly. And he, he took his time with them and he wanted them to be perfect. And I don't think I've ever come across anyone whose body of work is so averagely high in quality. Yes, whether you look at IMDb or just your own judgment of it, um, it's just superb or technically always superb. Whether you engage in it, whether you like the films is another matter, obviously, but they're all technically very, very good. And he doesn't waste time, even though certainly from a point onwards, I think is it from maybe from Lolita, I think onwards, the films tended to be pretty much always over two hours. I know Full Metal Jacket wasn't, yeah. but most of his other stuff was way over two hours long. And Again, on first viewings, I find them to be too long. On second viewings, I didn't, uh, which uh, with yeah. all these films, which is interesting. You pick up on all the little subtleties, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think it was, uh, who was it was talking about? Um, someone was talking about, I think it was, uh wasn't Spartacus, what was it? I can't remember now. Uh, no, it was actually The Shining, yeah. It might have been Woody Allen, actually. Someone was talking about The Shining and saying they were just, oh, no, Scorsese, that was it. He was talking about how engaged he was with the performances and the narrative drive to the point where he, even he, uh, you know, with his keen eye, didn't notice yeah. the details as much as he normally would have done. Yeah. And got to a second or third viewing. So he's definitely in the same oeuvre as um, the likes of Hitchcock, where you just spot more and more stuff every time you watch it. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about something with Spartacus to do with comedy as well. Not not a film with many jokes in it, but there's one bit which no. I noticed on the second or third viewing because um, I watched it a couple of times recently, one with and one without the commentary on it. And not actually to do with the commentary, but I happened to notice um, just a, a little comic, kind of a tiny little visual gag in there, which I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's good. Anyway, yeah. So, I mean, one, one other thing to mention, I think you've, you've touched on it as well, or I have as well, with chess. He was a massive chess fan. Oh, he was, he was very yeah. good at chess. I think, I don't know how good, whether he could have been a grandmaster if that was his uh, his chosen profession. But he was very good at chess. Um, he tended to... Um, to engage in it all the way through his life. And I think on set that famously there is a chess set in Dr. Strangelove. And um, actually they were playing with the chess set uh, in between takes, I think at various yeah. points. And there's a, there's a sign, there's a film frame of uh, the set where he's put a sign up saying, uh, you know, um, something about script continuity, <laughs> keep it where it is. And it might be, yeah. film, but I don't think it is. I think it's to do with a, an ongoing game he was playing with someone. Yes. He was playing with George C. Scott at one point, who plays one of the American generals. Yeah. It's all good fun. But yeah, he, obviously that tells you he's a brilliant mind as he's well. deeply intellectual, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But he couldn't beat, um, who was it? Uh, Malcolm McDowell at uh, Ping Pong. Um, they were doing <laughs> a great anecdote. Sorry, I'm digressing here, but I've got to get this in as well. Um, there was a great anecdote where Malcolm McDowell was talking about um, Two weeks of shooting the uh, the voiceover, which um, goes through Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and he said it was great. He said a really good time. It was literally just him and Kubrick pressing a button 
to print to hit record with fairly rudimentary recording equipment for two weeks. And he said it was really good and they bonded really well. Yeah. It's a ping pong table in the just in the next door to where they were recording. And they would intermittently stop and play ping pong, which Malcolm McDowell was better at. He Cooper couldn't beat him. <laughs> As Malcolm McDowell said, it's a different matter when it came to chess. So yeah, it was you know it was obsessive about those things, and apparently, um, his agent said later, "Well, you haven't been paid for the two weeks of the voiceover. You, everything else you have been." And he asked him, "We was going to see him anyway." And he asked him, "Oh yeah, by the way, um, I didn't get the two weeks pay according to my agent." He goes, "Oh," and pulled out a slide ruler out of his pocket and pretended to calculate something and said, "I tell you what, I'll pay you for one week." He goes, one week? He goes, yeah, because the other week was ping pong. (laughs) (laughs) Great anecdote. I love it. But he said he really enjoyed working with him, and he felt like he was really keen to to have a friendship with him, but he kind of cut people off. I thought he did. He didn't work with the same actors very often. I mean, Leonard Rossiter's in a couple of films. Is it Philip Stone who's in a few of his films? Yeah, Philip Stone is, yeah. Um, And he's playing smaller parts. But apart from that, it's... Yeah, Peter Sellers in a couple of films. Apart from that, he had a completely different cast. A lot of these, you know, your Scorsese will have De Niro or DiCaprio or Kurosawa or, you know, the the, the guys that they will go to that they will work with on the films. But he was, everything was within his own control. He didn't share with anybody. It was his vision and nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Right, okay. And I think after one time, I think most of us just didn't want to work with him again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um so phil with the with the top five so it's going to be you to go first um i've got um as i think i said to you off there i've got a huge number of notes about a film which i think just misses out for me um so that's going to be interesting <laughs> and well, maybe one... i'll choose it we'll see yeah we'll we'll see we'll see but i'm i'm, I'm sure you'll i think you'll have it in there but we'll, we'll see how that plans out in a moment um and I've I've agonised over this. I have to say, there's it's been this has been the most difficult one. Yeah. I could the top five. I could almost be in any day. Could be in any order. Yeah. In fact, it's not I, even I, that. It's almost like the top six or sevens like that. To be perfectly I had honest, seven. I've got seven that could be in any order. Actually, yeah. Well, not maybe not all of them in any order, but all of them could have been in the top five, and most of them could have been in the top. In any order within I ended up choosing a top 10 in the end just so that I could work out where I would put everything. Yeah. Well, you shall see. While I enjoy a few of these, by the way, Neck Oil, bit of a predictable classic, but um, I ended up with oh, some. Beaver Town, all very good. I'm on the Tiny Rebel. I'm on the uh, oh, yes. Club Tropica Tropical IPA. Yeah, nice. Staple classic. Yeah. So we should win and be imbibing ourselves of such lovely delights as we. Um, as we get embarked on our top five. So here we go to it then. Um, number five, and it's Phil first. Over to you, sir. So my number five, coming straight in, 1971, as Ali G called it, a chocolate orange. No, a clockwork orange, yes. <laughs> so in the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion, a conduct aversion experiment which doesn't go as as planned. Again, you mentioned it earlier. This, this was Malcolm McDowell playing Alex. He's in almost every frame of the film. Uh, also stars Patrick McGee, Michael Bates, Warren Clark, Michael Tarn, and then um, sort of early roles for young Stephen Burkoff and David Prowse. It's quite strange, actually. I watched this and Doctor Strangelove in the same night, and I so I saw Darth Vader in body in one film and in voice in another film. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so based on the on the book by Anthony Burgess, that was and um, it follows it pretty 
accurately pretty closely unlike quite a lot of his other ones so um anthony burgess he released the book i think in in the early 60s um he sold the rights to um to it actually to the rolling stones um and they planned to make a film of this with uh, Mick Jagger as Alex and the rest of the Stones as his gang with Ken Russell directing. I am very <laughs> happy that that film never got made. Um, after uh, um, a friend of Kubrick's, Terry Southern, who he worked with on Doctor Strange Love, um, gave him a copy of the book. He read it, loved it, and said, right, I'm going to be adapting this. Um, I think Anthony Burgess and Kubrick were both kind of kindred spirits in quite a long way. They 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 shared a lot of the same politics and sort of uh, philosophies and, and loves of art and cinema and music. I think they got on pretty well um, up to a point. They they had a couple of disagreements. Um, firstly, in the in the version of A Clockwork Orange that Kubrick had, he got the he had the American version, which misses the last chapter off. So I don't, we can't really go, well, I think spoilers are out in this, aren't they? Um, obviously, it, it, the, the story of the film is Alex gets caught being bad. Being, being bad. He goes to prison. He, is a, he has a long time in prison ahead of him. He, he um, volunteers to do this sort of revolutionary new Ludovico technique, aversion sort of behavioural therapy. Um, I think... Anthony Burgess, the writer, was deeply against behavioural therapy, and so he wrote a kind of book satirising it and uh, sort of trying to undermine it. This doesn't go very well um, for, for Alex's mental health. <laughs> it's an understatement. In the book, <laughs> he starts to come round in the last chapter. He starts to come round to it, and you kind of kind of see that he's actually becoming a normal person again. Hmm. In the American version of the book, they did they never included the last chapter. Ah. Okay. So Kubrick only ever filmed the American version of it, which didn't include that last chapter, which I don't think Anthony Burgess liked very much. But Kubrick also kind of said, well, it, it's inconsistent with the rest of the film and I wouldn't have included it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then when the film, um, I'm sure we'll get into this as well, when the film came out, it, it, did, it did very well. And then copycat violent acts started occurring. Um, the, the film came in for a lot of criticism and Kubrick didn't really care. He was off making his next film. He was like onto his next project. So Anthony Burgess, I think, had to kind of do all of the defending it against the tabloids and the yeah. TV art shows and everything else like that, where he would defend it. Say, mm -hmm. well, say, no, this is legitimate art because of this, this and this, and we should be talking about this. And he, I think he felt that Kubrick should have been helping him out there, but Kubrick was to his next project and um well can i just reveal that my number five is a clockwork orange as well chocolate orange <laughs> this might this might go quickly um I, I deliberated long and hard about this by the way the killing is the one that's just missed out and i changed it probably about a day ago i kept going between the two yeah but in the end the reason i've gone for this is to, just to extend on what you've said just the iconic imagery uh, and iconic dialogue, which I know is obviously from Burgess's novel, but to, to bring that on the screen and to realise it, it's such an innovative look, that film. It's so distinctive um, it in terms of everything, the costumes, the the stylization, the the, the sets, uh, the set design as well. Um, everything about that just seems to get under your skin and encapsulate it, a certain yeah. surreal, slightly futuristic version of Britain 
Um, you've it's got, a sort I, of near future Brit dystopian Britain, dystopian, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And well, t- I'll, I'll get into talking about more of their stuff in a minute. But um, they, I, they shot—I don't know where they shot it, but I'm, I'm going to guess it's somewhere like Thamesmead or something. Yeah, bland, brutalist sixties um, settings outside concrete where, hell. Yeah, yeah, where they beat up the old drunk and where. Um, where I where mean, the first ten minutes of this film are horrific. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, it, you you start watching it and you just think, what the hell's going on? I mean, I read the book. Um, oh right, okay, I haven't. Yeah. Okay, you know, the book's quite interesting, but because um, it's all written in NADSAT, which is the same language that the voiceover is, which is a kind of a slang language that's mm. based on Russian, English, and Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah. Um, so the reason Burgess used that was because he was trying to future-proof science fiction novels would go out of date really, really quickly, mm. and he was kind of trying to future-proof it by setting it in a in a, in a you know a future language which hasn't hasn't taken root yet. Therefore. In theory, the book shouldn't become out of date, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean it's in English, but it's kind of all of yeah. I mean, you, the, the, oh, you get, the version of the book I had had a dictionary in the back that I needed when I read it. You yeah. can get versions of it without the dictionary, and then you have to kind of work 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 it out for yourself yeah, as so you, you go. Uses words like "vidi," which means to see or perceive something, doesn't it? And yeah. there's is it Kolchok or? For, for beating people up, I think, or something like that. And you've got your yeah, balls. the ultraviolence, yeah. Your balls is bollocks. Ultraviolence, he mentions. And there's milk plus from the Corovo yeah, bar. which is a sort of drug-laced drink that, that, that they have. Yeah, but, yeah, the, the, the first 10 minutes are brutal. And I'm yeah. not surprised that a lot of people got upset back in 1971 when this came out. You, within the first 10 minutes, you've had two gang rapes, full frontal nudity, mass muggings, huge yeah. fights. It, and, I mean, and then so, after that, it's a it's a very different film. Once you get past that, hmm. and he gets caught, it's a very very different film from the rest of it. But I mean, nothing else in 1971 that was anything like that. I can. I mean, it's it's a curiosity because um, it was banned in this country for quite a while because of Kubrick. Kubrick had actually yeah. Warner's. Well, he pleaded with Warner's to get it um, paused, which Warner's went with. We'll talk about the relationship with Warner Brothers probably a bit later on to do with the the, um, the level of autonomy he was given over his own project, yeah. which is highly unusual. Because although he took loads of time on his takes and his, his sets and the filming process, he was actually fairly low budget with small crews, so he was able yeah. to not cost the studios too much, and he was generally critically and commercially successful by yeah. and large. So he had a long-standing relationship, which was successful with Warner's. That's a note to anyone out there, for, uh, film studio-wise: give a, give a master of the art freedom, because then you'll get better work yeah. and still make money. Anyway, that, executives, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, he had a good relationship with Warner's, which was long established already by then, and he um, he, he pleaded with them to get it taken off because what was happening? I think was, that the tabloids were really going for it. Weren't yeah, they? the tabloids, no, and this, this is not the only time we'll ever have a go, probably at the tabloids. I cannot stand the gutter press in this country yeah. I find highly, oh, yeah. highly sinister and this is a classic example of it they went to town on him they've, they've always had a bit of a even in his later years when he's a recluse there's a, a nasty edge to the way they yeah i mean bear in mind he'd been living in the uk 10 years by this point yeah his yeah. His, his kids for, for all were essentially english yeah yeah, that's it. And um, but he he received death threats. There'd been plenty of vitriolic reaction in general. Um, there was a review which suggested that um, uh, that you know Kubrick should 
pull it, pull the film, oh, yeah, sorts of other stuff that were just uh, just completely against this film. And he was deeply concerned about that. He was worried for his safety, his family's safety, and he was worried for the effect it seemed to be having on the general public. Yeah. Because a number of these reports, it's hard to know what what was bullshit by the by the press and what was actually the genuine claims, whether whether the real influence or not, the claims of the criminals. Yes. There, were, there was a there was a gang rape scenario. There was um, someone who broke into three homes and just wrecked homes. There was, a, I think, two old guys and one younger guy were attacked. Yeah. And either the music, the songs that were in one of the rape scenes from the film or or other references were made. I think there was there was some of the quotes were carved onto a a, a rape singing song. in the rain, isn't it? Yeah. Someone was yeah singing in the rains from the um from the rape scene. But there, I think there was stuff carved onto a razor blade that someone was using to attack someone. Yeah. So clearly they were being influenced. I mean, these people are nuts. Yeah. And I think he felt genuinely distraught at him and his family over, yeah. over yeah. it. So he, he said, pull right. it. And they did. I mean, how many directors have got that kind of swing to say, take my film off? Exactly. But take the, I mean, in 1973, two years later, it was still it was still being shown at the cinema. It was hmm. the third highest earner behind The Godfather and Live and Let Die. Yeah. Oh, it's hugely successful, yeah. And this this was in Britain. It was it was only pulled in Britain, as I understand yeah. it. I think it was available everywhere else around the world. And, yeah, can I and just it say wasn't that? available again until as soon as he died, it suddenly popped up on DVD very, very quickly afterwards. Yes, exactly. Because I own, and I, I've still kept this, even though I've got no way of playing it, and I don't care. I've kept, I've got a Dutch um, video cassette of A Clockwork Orange from way before it became available again. Uh, I had a mate who was, um, well, he's basically French, but kind of Dutch citizen, um, who, and of course it was available there. So I've got yeah. it, I've got it in Dutch with, um, I think it's got in Dutch with English subtitles. I've got no way of telling now. Yeah. Um, but it's a quite a cool box as well the, the, for videotape, which is obviously quite a bulky yeah. storage format. It was actually slightly shorter with curved edges, so it had that cool edge. Oh, and the, okay. the imagery on the front, the artwork for the for the posters is great. So yeah, that was a treasured possession which I kept for um, for old times' sake. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was banned in a lot of countries. Oh, it was. Um, okay. uh, so you couldn't see it in Ireland until the year two thousand at all. Oh, right. Um, Wow. And Malta was the year 2000 as well. Singapore, it wasn't available until 2011. So yep. that's like 40 years after it came out. South Africa, it was 1984. Um, and Brazil banned it until 1978. And even when it was let out, they had to have black dots over all the nudity, <laughs> kind of covering it all up. Yeah, because that's one of the other motifs of, well, there's plenty of motifs in, in Kubrick's work. One of them is voiceover, which permeates the large part of his body of work. Not yeah. always all the way through, but he has bits of voiceover in most of his films. I mean, quite often voiceover is seen as the cheats way, the easy way of adapting yeah, but something. But in his case, it's, it's, it really works. Yeah, yeah it's, it's suitable, so it works. And, and one of the other motifs is nudity. There's a lot of female nudity in his films. We've mentioned yeah. the Colorado Orange. They do depict that pretty starkly. Uh, obviously, Eyes Wide Shut for most famously yeah. last film. But even in... Um, Interestingly, in Spartacus, um, which is um, a film I've got loads of notes on, by the way, because I think there's so much to talk about in that film, yeah. whether or not it's in my five. Um, you've got Gene Simmons in there, and, and you've got quite a racy scene by, you know, sword and sandals, yeah. 60 standards, uh, or late 50s, or in this case, 1960 standards, where you see she's clearly topless, although she's obviously covered to a, a yeah. 
level through what in one scene. And this is a studio level. film as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of quite racy com- compared with what was going on at the time elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've got Psycho, obviously the same year, 1960, but with this, you know, given the type of subject matter, uh, it's not a biblical epic, but it's of that era. Um, it's kind of, you, you can see she's genuinely topless, but hidden by water or light. Yeah. And um, they've got, they, he pushes the boundary slightly. He does seem to like a bit of female nudity. Though yeah. I have, I did read that he looked seriously about making a pornographic film at one point using his own direction. Well, that's one genre he hadn't explored. So, yeah, he yeah, likes But uh, it obviously <laughs> never came to anything in the end. Uh, but it does seem a little bit... He's got that Hitchcock voyeurism about him, definitely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities between the two. He puts uh, actors through the ringer. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, The Shining yeah. and Shelley De- DeVal yeah. and lots of other things later on. In fact, not just Shelley DeVal in that film. But, um, um, yeah, it's just... Um, he, he, I think he's maybe more liked after the events by some of the actors who have been put through the ringer than Hitchcock was. But I yeah. think there's still a, a, there's a similarity with that. I think um, he realises the imagery of what he wants to create well before in a lot of detail. So there's a lot of similarities. And obviously, yeah. the, uh, well, one was British and moved to America. The other's American and moved to Britain. So yeah. there's, a, there's a kind of like a symmetrical opposite yes. there, which is quite neat and tidy, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, um, I, I think I love it. I think you've covered most of what it's got. I mean, it's got some very interesting themes on sort yep. of morality and what rights does someone who's capable of such violence actually have, and how do you readjust them and to get them back into society, and what is acceptable in terms of psychology? Yeah. And, can people be really? Um, uh, can they be rehabilitated? Can they be redeemed? Can they be saved, changed, whatever? And that it's essentially the conversion therapy is yeah it's basically a brainwashing technique they use in the film where they they force him to watch images of things similar to what he's done yes. in fact, the news people dressed and in the play, way and play his favorite music at the same play time yeah. music, which it was that inadvertent or not it sort of suggests it was by chance but then we know that the prison the, the um, minister of um the interior who's visited the jail and ha- happens to select select him for something he says he's visited his, r- his prison room and seen a beethoven statue and a beethoven portrait in his room did he did he know that was that guy it's not made clear mm. but so in other words it's not made clear whether the music was a deliberate kind of side torture element to it um but it's interesting to note the way those the, the stories presented he alex um two things i want to say about alex um one is i think he's uh it's fantastic casting he's he's absolutely Malcolm perfect in this perfect yeah. for it i so i haven't read the book but certainly the version of the story that we've seen the film um both of us is i mean it's, it's just perfect he encapsulates and inhabits that role so well yeah. he's both kind of clean cut looking but disgusting at the same time yeah i think i think just... So, McDowell was cast by Kubrick after he saw him in the 1968 film If, um, hmm. and said, "Well, he can. He's he's got that violence about him, but he can also ex- ex- exude to intelligence on screen." Yep. And I think yeah, McDowell kind of got involved quite a lot. Um, so it was McDowell's suggestion that him and the rest of his his gang all wear the cricket whites with the jock 
the box on all the Americans got the tox jar, the box on the outside. As they, yeah. you know, that's that that was his suggestion of what occasionally what they with the phallic wear. mask, nose mask thing as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've, they've essentially the notion is they've got these gangs roving around juvenile delinquents who are going out in the evenings and beating people up and raping people and robbing people and whatever yeah. they're doing. There seemed to be this idea that there's different gangs with different uniforms because the early scene shows yeah. the others are all in combat gear aren't they and these guys are very distinctive with their white fatigues for want of a better word and bowler hats or top hats um that kind of stuff that's their modus operandi but alex is excuse me alex is great because he's so convincing to be both obviously quite (coughs) excuse me sorry Theo went down the wrong way He's, he's quite bright he's clearly bright intelligent he has the capacity to genuinely appreciate Beethoven that's his pretty yes. much one and only go-to music isn't it um there or thereabouts and he's got all that in his armory but he's also got this horrendously evil streak as well yes obviously the, the yeah where the story goes that when he when he's incarcerated and he's gone through the aversion therapy there's a point where he's been admitted to um I think it's when he's signing up for the therapy that he gives his name I can't remember what his surname is it's Alex de something and later on, when you see, there's another image of uh, some documentation, and it shows the name Alex Burgess. So they've changed oh, okay. the name. I don't know if you spotted that. To no. The name of the author of the book, um, which is not what, the, as far as you can see, the name he'd given earlier is the correct name, because there's no reason he would have lied to people. Yes, yeah. And there's no, it's not contested when he says it. So clearly that was his real name. But they've just chucked in this little joke. Um oh. Yeah, you know, just a little reference, um, which I only noticed the other day when I watched it. Most one little other one other little one on Anthony Burgess. So he, Anthony Burgess, then adapted the, the, his novel for the stage in 1984, yep. um, and then in part, part of the way during during the play, he has a man dressed in his his stage notes, a man dressed as Kubrick, come on, playing, singing in the rain. He gets kicked <laughs> off stage straight away. So, so make of that what you will. Yeah, uh, the scene in the rain scene is is pretty disturbing. I think that was improvised as well. Yeah, I think they improvised a few things, haven't they? And he's he's quite happy to have actors do that. Yeah, um, he's got a bit of that in spot. Peter Sellers well. definitely did a lot. Yeah, Sellers. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean he's uh, famously does do that quite often. Anyway, and um, the other thing about I mean I, I love the the imagery of this film. As I said, the artwork, the set design, all of that stuff's great. Um, the interaction with his three droogs, as they're called. Um, it's good as well. You've got yeah, Warren Clark. We've seen Warren Clark young. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen him in a movie. Whenever I think of Warren Clark, I just think of that football hooligan film, ID, where he plays. Yes, he was in that, wasn't he? he was in, isn't he in yeah. that? Is it Dezeal and Pasco? Dezeal and Pasco, yeah. Which I've never seen, but I think a lot yeah. of people know him for that. And he, he plays Dim uh, because he's literally a bit of a Dim character. Yeah. He, he has a bit of a. a, a, a um, a revolutionary element to him at one point. He's, he's kind of uh, slightly humiliated in front of a bunch of strangers yeah. in, the, in the milk bar, isn't he? And then he, he he takes exception to it. It looks like there's going to be a bit of a, bit of a standoff. Alex reestablishes control, or so it seems, and then through a bit of his musical divine inspiration, he then decides to attack uh, his fellow droogs, and uh, yeah. and then he reestablishes his authority, or so we think. But it's uh, in a revenge moment where. Uh, they they attack him when they're attacking a house. Uh, they hit him and leave him leave him to be caught by the police, thus the capture and so on. But you've got some really and then, you, and then he eventually becomes police. 
right at the end. Yes, the two two of them end up as police yeah. officers who then terrorise him. Uh, yeah. After he's had his aversion therapy, and there's um also um the we mentioned about um the characters that come up. Uh, sorry, the actors that come up in his films. They they don't tend to do more than two if they're in there at all. Is it Philip Stone, the guy that plays his dad? Yeah. And he's he's this sort of like affable, mild mannered. He's a, yeah, he plays the kind of the, the, the butler guy in The Shining as well when yes, he's in them. Right. I, I actually watched with my eldest daughter last week, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and I forgot that he was the he's like the, the brigadier guy, like he was a leader of the English oh, army in that as well. Yeah. I love that when you rediscover oh he is yeah. a nice. Yeah. yeah. I've seen George Cole who plays Mind yeah, Arthur Daly and Minder. Yeah in some films as a like a as a, a juvenile <laughs> it's really <laughs> what <laughs> he's in the centurion yeah. film, like that. Like, yeah. oh um but anyway yeah in this film i mean so philip stay yeah he's he's very good he, what, what i love about this is you've got this incongruity because you've got his parents who are quite uh, old parents yeah. say i think it's safe to say yeah. for the given the age difference and he's the sort of balding affable very mild-mannered uh put upon sort of uh I wouldn't say boo to yeah. a good father figure, uh, which maybe is not a stern enough figure for a, a wayward son. Who knows? And then yeah. you've got the mother who's wearing these really bizarre, ridiculous outfits, ridiculous yeah. outfits, almost like sci-fi outfits. And the interior of their flat in a, a bland housing estate, um, block of flats, it's got this kind of again sci-fi interior with these really weird dimpled, yeah, and um, all the the music they they play is on. They've got record players by the looks of it, but they've got these tiny little cassette player cassette things. Cassette tapes, yeah, these almost, yeah, yeah like that tapes, yeah. Kind of like what they, I guess it's a prediction of mini-disc, I guess, isn't it, more or less? Yeah. Like Where they've got the compact versions of the, the music. You can buy records, according to the story. Yeah. Video. And everything about it seems to completely clash with what these characters, these Because they go, they go to the record, record store in this, don't they? And if you look, if you look, 2001. There's a copy of the 2001 yeah. there. Yeah, he loves those in jokes. Yeah, um, he does that quite a bit. There's something where he goes, "Haven't we seen this before?" In one of the characters, and it's referencing yeah. a previous film. But yeah, um, music plays a big part. We'll talk about music more in a minute. But yeah, the, the I mean, the, the whole incongruity of you know the parents, the type of people they are, very old fashioned. Oh yes, oh hello dear, sort of to their son kind of characters. In this sort of like surreally modern, yeah. funky sort of, it's basically hyper sixties style um, interiors and fashions. And she's got dyed blonde, uh, sorry, dyed coloured hair, isn't she? Yeah, uh, but it's sort of really bright pink and blue coloured hair, all that kind of thing. It's all very bizarre. Um, so you got that as well as a, while as he's a... in prison, they 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 adopt another yes. guy who's about his age. Yeah, yeah, he looks like oh. someone from a rock band, like something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, we're gonna have to be careful. We're gonna have to be careful, otherwise we could talk about this film all night. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I think. The, the, well, the reason it, it made my five in the end was I think because of how iconic, how distinctive it is, yeah. how interesting it is, how varied it is. I think, along with all the other films I mentioned, I preferred it when the second time I saw it. Interestingly, yeah. which was at the cinema the second time. I think it must have been after the re- release came out. Release, yeah. And um, it's, I mean, it's a, a unique film. It's so distinctive. It's so iconic. It's not easy to watch in quite a lot. It's not of easy to watch. I mean, it, it deals with some serious subject matter, and you know, it's it, it's probably I would say is hardest to watch in that sense. Um, but it is also very. It's, it's just so unique. I think yeah. the whole entity is 
standalone is, is out of the blue. It's, it's, it's something incredible. So on that basis, it edges The Killing, which I think is a really good, solid heist movie, which I could easily have had at number five or even at number four in my, my um, yeah. fives. The Killing misses out and Clockwork Orange just squeezes in. Fantastic. Right. Number four, Phil, what have you got? Right. So for number four, some might feel this is a little... You know, it should be higher, but I've gone for 2001 A Space Odyssey at number four. Right, let me get my notes. (laughs) So, yes, um, after uncovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, a spacecraft is sent to find its origins, manned by two men and the supercomputer HAL 9000. Right, so again, based on a book, um, and again, Kubrick enjoyed a, um, a close relationship most of the time and, and also a bit of a falling out with the author so this so arthur c clark who's a sort of famous science fiction author who actually mm-hmm. lived in sri lanka and most people thought well you never get him out of sri lanka and as soon as kubrick went do you want to come over here and work with me on a film he was straight on the next plane over they worked together on this film four years wow. so he, he, I mean, he originally wrote a short story in 1951 called the sentinel mm. and then kubrick and clark wrote an, a, a sort of novelization of the film and the, the script between them. Not that there is much of a script. For a film that's almost three hours long, I think Kubrick, well, I think Kubrick obviously decided that it was going to be all about the visuals and the yeah. music, and there was going to be as little dialogue as, as possible. Um, the film is almost completely non-verbal, so it, it communicates on a, on a visual and a visceral level, like rather than through kind of conventional narrative, the first twenty minutes and the last twenty minutes have no dialogue whatsoever. There's not many films that that can say that. Um, so anyway, yeah. So after Doctor Strangelove, um, Kubrick um, decided he wanted to sort of stretch himself and make what he called the proverbial good science fiction movie. So he'd never seen what he, he he apart from maybe Forbidden Planet, um, um, there, there was no such thing as a kind of a highbrow science fiction. At that time, um, all of the sort of science fiction films were, in his words, monsters and sex. You know, mm. they, that, that, that was what science fiction was for. And he wanted to be able to sort of make something far more realistic than what had ever been done before. Now, obviously, that came at a prodigious cost. I think he was uh, he was lucky in the fact that MGM had invented this new widescreen format called Cinerama, and they wanted to show it off. So I think he was basically given a blank blank check to go off and make his film. He was given a budget of six million dollars. Bearing in mind this is in the mid nineteen sixties, he ended up spending ten and almost eleven million dollars, and he the film was almost a year and a half late from when it when it should have been. Cinerama basically is this giant format, really. Yeah, ultra widescreen basically, isn't it? Curves around, uh, so if you're watching it in cinemas on the correct format, you're kind of really engrossed in it. Very immersive, yeah. And I I mean, this this film is just so incredibly groundbreaking. Yeah, Uh, there's a there's a whole um, huge array of sci-fi. Uh, films, books, plays, and whatever else uh, that have gone before. Um, and you've got your Flash Gordons, you've got your Forbidden Planets, you've got your various other things that go before. But it was redefined, wasn't it, by this film? Um, you had imagery that you'd never seen before, 
all the, the, the themes about rotation, the ships are rotating, uh, people yeah. inside the ships are in rotational device, or well, they've been filmed in rotational devices, obviously depicting gravity, and they've got grip boots to walk around the surface. Yes. Constant distortion of where people are in the, in the frame. You know, you've got scenes where someone's sitting and eating food somewhere, and someone else is walking up the walls and the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it's fantastically inventive. Uh, as you said, it's got the audacity to have very little dialogue. There's very little narrative to this film. Um, no. Essentially, you've just got, there's two or three things. It's almost you... like watching a documentary rather than a, a, a yeah. film. Yeah, almost, yeah. It really is genre non-specific, apart from sci-fi, obviously. You can say sci-fi. Yeah. Is it science fiction or science future? That's the other thing, because what they've depicted, of course, is space travel um, yeah. it, in the story it's people who are obviously in a commercial interest in in you know there's the commercial yeah. reasons to travel but you can see that they're, they're presenting the the halfway point where they meet because uh, you've got um one of the uh, captains goes on the journey uh for a, a, a corporate visit to one of the locations and he stops in what is essentially like an airport lounge um, yes yeah, it's, it's in the moon isn't it he's got, kind of got a hotel there yeah and then a roster as well yeah yeah Leonard roster who's who's in two of his films he's in this and he's in what's the other one he's in he's in something else as well uh i can't remember it's going to come uh, to barry linden barry linden that's right yeah yeah Leonard roster of rising damp fade in case people are wondering yeah. who that is and doctor who and Doctor Who, yeah, yeah, good, great British actor, like a lot of all the yeah. comedy actors from sitcoms and things. Anyway, um, so yeah, you've got very little dialogue. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, I think one of the producers on one of the films was interviewed saying how um, it seems to be that Stanley Kubrick was suggesting that he made films almost in blocks of six, which is not normal. You normally get first act, second act, second act, yeah. Um, and he he was making them in blocks of six and. Uh, who was it? No, actually, it's Woody Allen. It was Woody Allen that said in this film, it seemed that even though that's how he normally makes it, it was more tangibly obvious that this, this, this almost you could tell that was that was the building blocks of this story. Yeah. Uh, and what what he thought was that that made it actually all the more kind of mysterious and enigmatic. Um, and yeah. what makes the question to Kubrick deliberately make it feel like that? I think he probably did, uh, to be honest, because he knew exactly what he was doing. But, um, yeah, there's not much narrative. The story, of course, uh, as far as it goes, is um, there's something's gone on in a certain location. It starts in prehistoric times, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, let's go back to that. Yeah, so it starts with this monolith turning up. Oh, it, was, it was originally, originally, his original cut started with a 10-minute black and white opening sequence featuring scientists talk about extraterrestrial life and and sort of musing on its existence, and then the studio cut all that off. It, it wasn't needed. They did. But so instead, they 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 kind of had the prehistoric segment with the with with the monkeys, uh, played by a mime troupe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mime troupe. Um, who are pretty good actually. Yeah, um, it's really weird. I'd seen this film only once until I watched it for this, and um, again, as I said, first time I watched these films, I don't get on with them as well. I got pretty bored with this film the first time I saw it, which was honestly... Oh, oh, this is another one that you do have to see in the cinema, I think. Yeah, I've never I had the opportunity to do that. And I, I haven't seen I've it. I've never seen it. Yeah. I've, got a big I've, never, I've never seen any of his films at a cinema. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen Clockwork Orange, and I think I might 
oh, an eyes wide shot. That might be it. But with this film, I'd have seen it on a bigger screen at home than the one I originally saw it on. Yeah. And I maybe wasn't in the right mood for it. And I do think with Kubrick, you need to see it a second time. Yes. All of that's true. But I got so much more out of this film the second time I saw it. And I don't, the weird thing is, I only remember certain bits about it. I remember a monkey smashing a bone on but other bones. Throwing it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember the, the judge shot, yeah. And I remember the Hal, close-ups on Hal, which is the computer, we'll talk about that in a minute, and, um, and three or four other sequences in it. And I couldn't remember anything more about it. But I watched it this time around. That's pretty it? much most of what happens, though, to be, to be honest. And a lot of model shots. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But the monkey stuff, the, the simians, the primates, whatever you want to call them at the beginning, um, are, I didn't realise how long that went on for. Yeah, no, I thought it was minutes yeah. where you see them, they're, they're, they're um, basically just getting battered. I'm, I'm sure that when I watched this originally, it was on TV and they cut it. Maybe they did. Yeah, maybe that's why. Yeah, we cause it, yeah. yeah you might be right, because TV does tend to do that. They, they, they yeah. cut stuff, which irritates me, really. I, I don't yeah. know. I want to see. I mean, obviously, I won't watch a film on TV now on streaming or DVD. Yeah, but exactly. back in the eighties and early nineties or whatever, that was the only way you had of watching things. I hadn't know. thought about that, but you're right. That's a really good point. That's probably why it felt so much um, yeah. more shorter. But yeah, so the um, the I mean, you see the uh, the primates getting battered by wildcats and whatever. Then you see them getting pushed out of a watering hole by other primates gangs yeah and they one of them uh, the monolith turns up uh, yeah they, i think they, they they spent a lot of time designing that monolith and yeah they, they came with all these different ideas for it and they just none of them looked right on screen so in the end they just went for this matte black so there could be no reflection so that that, that was what they yeah. thought made it look the most sort of yeah. otherworldly and they, i yeah. think they're right and yet it's still opaque and just yeah. looked right, and it's quite thick as well. And they they all come around it, and essentially the the notion seems to be that somehow they gain knowledge or initiative yeah. from touching it. It's the and next step, it. isn't it? Yeah, the next evolution. Step. And, they, and then they start playing around with bones, going, "Oh, hang on, these work as weapons." So yeah. they go back and take the watering hole back from the other primates using weapons and batter the hell out of one of them, and 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 then they go on to the next step, and then you think, "Okay, that's great," and then. The monolith comes up as a as a theme later in the film, uh, including the, the the stuff to do with Jupiter right at the end. And yeah, so so about this bigger, greater conscious intelligence. Yeah, so Kubrick was originally, I think, going to have kind of aliens turn up at the end and sort of the kind of proverbial little green men. And he spoke to uh, the astronomer Carl Sagan, and he said, "No, you, you, that will, you don't want that. You want to you want to suggest." extraterrestrial super intelligence rather than see it yes yeah. and i think i think that was definitely the right way to go yeah agreed yeah and then we've got to talk about the other thing which is i mean he's preempted a number of elements of um what have become science fact one is about and they had what, what they were calling video phones at the time yeah Kind of a just about around, but he, he finds kubrick's actual kids i think on it. <laughs> yes that's right yeah the, yeah. the character who's travelled and stops in that air yeah. lounge or whatever it is. Um, yeah, he, he makes a call, doesn't he? He has to pay for it, but he makes a call Yeah, kids in real time, which probably isn't realistically possible. But anyway, but he he, he preempts the notion of AI and uh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And obviously you've got HAL, which famously is an acronym, H-A-L, in capitals. And HAL, of course, is one letter away from IBM, 
which some people have speculated might have been a... Because I think he was originally going to work with them, but didn't for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I wonder if that... Knowing his... his um, well, his penchant for chucking in little jokes, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty probably is the case. I'm not sure if it was ever established, but yeah, I mean, Hal is the computer who essentially has um, general control over the... Yeah. Uh, ship but there are overrides available that's the concept of it so it's gaining artificial intelligence it's learning how to converse with the astronauts five yeah. of whom have gone on this in the main part of the story five have gone on this journey um and i think it's 18 months after the uh the previous people have been on the moon yeah moon, and they find another monolith yeah. and now they've gone 18 months into the future and you've got this other voyage and there's two astronauts who are awake and functioning. There's three who are cryogenically frozen and traveling with them, who we never see. Um, one of whom is called Kaminsky, which is the name he uses more than once in different films, by the yeah. way. And one of the chess players he used to play chess with in New York oh, okay. is called Kaminsky, by the way. So okay. yeah. I'll throw that one in. Really obscure bit of trivia. Yes. <laughs> so those three people, those three guys, you never see them. And then the other two are just functioning on the ship with this computer HAL. And um, essentially, I mean, there's, you, you get the uh, the reversal as well, because HAL starts talking about emotions. He becomes quite seemingly emotive. He says, oh, I've never had fears. I've done this. Yeah. And he starts interpreting their artwork and saying, oh, you're doing better with your sketches and stuff like that. Well, the interesting contrast is that the the um, the actual well, um, what are they called? Aeronauts? No, um, cosmonauts. That's the word. I'm yeah. Um, are um are actually quite emotionless. And yes. I think that contrast is deliberately put in, isn't it? The two. Actors, yeah, I think he's deliberately made all of the um all of the dialogue just boring and yeah, it's quite technical related. It's quite, it's quite emotionless. They look quite similar to each other. Yeah. Uh, to Bearing in mind his previous film. Doctor Strange Love had about one of the best scripts ever. This is just the complete antithesis of it. Yeah, and it's a real departure. Um, and they're they're pretty robotic and emotionless. Even when there's dramatic stuff happening, Hal starts to go wrong and doing some funky stuff. You know, even the the way he reacts to that is uh to to the main guy, it's Dave, isn't it? Um yeah. his mate has been has been out trying to repair something that Hal has said has gone wrong and they got yeah. a problem with, and then he goes out. Uh, to try and repair it and gets cast off and at this point they're already a little bit worried whether Hal is malfunctioning and there's something sinister going on and yet he quite emotionlessly reacts to it and then goes out and just mundanely goes to try yes. to solve the problem and you think why why would he not show more emotion it's a bit weird yeah but what is interesting about um about this is also um uh the uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who was interviewed on one of the documentaries, or shall I say Sir Arthur C. Clarke, um, who, of course, wrote the original story it's based on, um, he was talking about, uh, he was working, as you said, for four years with him, and there was loads of interesting stuff. Arthur C. Clarke said um, what he liked about the film was just lots of the realisation of detail, but what he didn't like was the notion of lip-reading. He didn't think that Hal would be able to lip-read um, and yet, oh, okay. current AI is suggesting that they're going to be able to do that. So yeah. he said, "Well, Stanley was right; I was wrong." <laughs> this is an interview from a few years ago. Um, but yeah, interesting stuff. Um, also, you so, mentioned 
So Sorry. we said that they were they were four they were four years in it. Kubrick spent two, just two almost two years exclusively on the special effects for this, for which he won his only Oscar. Um, there were two hundred and five special effects shots in this, and they were completely revolutionary and way ahead of the game. And they remained way ahead of the game another ten years till Star Wars came along and and George Lucas had to and sort of set up ILM. Talking about influences, I mean, very clearly Star Wars and probably the the, the later episodes of Star Trek and various other sci-fi films. Well, it, it opened up the market for serious sci-fi films. Yeah. So if you didn't have this, there would be no Close Encounters, no Alien, no Blade Runner, no Interstellar. You could see I that. Also, I mean, Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve have obviously learned quite a lot from watching Kubrick's films. Definitely. But also just, I mean, Star Wars is probably the most obvious influence completely influenced by this in terms of the way the ships are presented and shown on the screen. I think yeah, you know, so, there's, there's only so the way what they would do is, the, the, and they did this with Star Wars as well, is the ships would never act, that were all based on models that would be yeah. like lit, but the ships would never move, the camera would move. Yeah. And you could do things where you put a motor on the camera and it could move around the ship and then you could record it and you could take other passes and add other things in the background and, and that kind of thing. So this is all the first time this sort of, sort of stuff had been done. I mean, the model work on this is, is um, Stunning. Abs- absolutely incredible. So I think they, they, I mean, the models they used range from two foot shuttles to one of the spacecraft. The model was 55 feet long. Yeah, and, and and for the space the spacecraft interior, um, they built they built the centrifuge, um, and it was th- weighed thirty tons and was forty feet in diameter. <laughs> That's amazing. And also, we're on the Star Wars front, I mean, the, the shapes of some of the ships. I know there's only so many yeah. different you can make things look, but definitely that was influenced. But also, there's there's shots where the the ship comes into into frame in fairly large size. Yeah. And, Drifts across the screen, so you could see where George Lucas was beginning. Yeah, for the, the famous overhead shot of an enormous ship coming into view at the beginning of Star Wars, uh, the first first Star Wars. One, I think one of their trickier special effects was the zero gravity because they obviously had no way of doing that at the time. So what they had, what they kind of did was um, hang all of the actors on wires and put the yeah. camera below In them. Harnesses, all that stuff. Yeah. It's very cleverly done because you watch it now; it looks like it's all been done by CGI, you know. Yeah, and it really wasn't. It was all there's a giant Ferris wheel, and they yeah. had. Uh, I think there's a scene where someone's coming down a ladder, and it looks like they're coming down sideways. So you think, um, and, and obviously they're, they're filmed upright, but then there's someone as I said eating food, and it, you think, hang on, how does that work? And it's real; it's a real brain fuzz to try and work out what what they've done because you know it's in. It's, yeah. not, it's not CGI'd at all. There's no no effects in this, apart from later on in the the end scenes. But um, uh, and even that was more to do with camera tricks. But there's there's also a scene with the um when he's this guy who's flying to the moon in the eighteen months earlier bit. Um, he's traveling. It's like he's he's only the only one on the the flight, so to speak. Yeah. But he's, um, he's got an air hostess in a funny sort of headwear thing comes yes. up with her grip boots on, walking unsteadily, and um, he's fallen asleep in his seat. The only person on this on this um, journey, and um, his pens come out of his, of his hand, and it's floating around because obviously no gravity. And she picks it up and puts it back in his um, breast pocket of his jacket. Yeah. And um, there, there was the woman that was playing that. It was like most of the actors actually are, are British in his films because it was. Yes, well, they were all filmed in, in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, usually at Elstree, which is boring. Yeah. Um, 
and sometimes at Shepparton or Pinewood, but, but they're all based here. And a lot of the extras and the smaller character roles are all played by Brits. And this very kind of posh woman's talking about how she played the role. And apparently the, the pen floating in the air, they just had a big bit of glass that members of the crew were rotating around. So it looks oh, okay. like she comes and picks it up. And apparently she said it wasn't perfect because when she picked it up, there's a slight look of resistance as she picks it up. So if you oh, okay. up to the glass... You know she's kind of pulling it yeah. in, the stickiness of it. But it still looks fine. It looks great. But all those little tidbits of information are quite amusing. But the visionary elements are, are stunning. We've mentioned the video phone, the AI, the notion of space travel, work uh, but can be leisure, that type of stuff. Um, but also just um, just just the, the framing of it is just stunning as well. How he can yeah. shots, um, the space, the way he uses the space is just absolutely superb and it's revolutionary and and it's despite the lack of a narrative i was really engaged with it all yeah. the, time. the other the thing to to mention um, i think is in kind of in the absence of any dialogue obviously they still want to create the the right mood and the the way that music is used and not used in this is, is unbelievable so there's never any music and dialogue at the same time you either get one or the other or nothing yeah <laughs> So it's it's not, the model it's shots have to have the music, yeah. A good one. It's incredible. He, he's, we've sure also mentioned he heavily uses classical music in his films, and we, we've already talked about one of his next films, Clockwork Orange, but um, he uses Beethoven in that. But um, the thing is, with 2001 The Space Odyssey, obviously it's Johann Strauss's famous music yeah. and, and, and that stuff. And it is, it's like a, it's a space opera. It really yeah. is part of the story. Uh, it's it's an indelible part of the story. There's two main characters in this film who are people. One one is the music, and the other one is Hal, the computer. Yeah. Who, um, the, the poor the poor guy. I mean, he employed someone to do the uh, do the Alex North to do the uh, to do the score. Yeah. And Alex North, the typical Kubrick, didn't tell him the end. Bothered using it, so Alex North turned up at the, the premiere. That's the first time he knew that none of his music had been used that he'd been working yeah. on. Because we worked with him on uh, Spartacus as well, yeah. We? And that score is brilliant. Maybe a bit overwrought. It's a bit, bit domineering, to be honest. Yeah. Know? But uh, he's he's a brilliant composer, um, Alex North. But anyway, um, but the other, yeah. So so uh, I think with this, yeah. I mean, it was it was um, a pretty. It got a mauling by the critics when it came out. Not many people thought much of it, and it was actually kind of audience power. And I think not. I mean, because it cost so much money originally on its original run, lost money. But so many people went to go and see it multiple times yeah. that it eventually started it more than recouped. They really engaged with investment. Apparently, and and I think this is. I, I bet this was a genuine headcount that he did. But apparently, all the executives came to a very big premiere of the film, and, t- and he said there were he said there were two hundred and forty one walkouts, walkouts mainly yeah. by older people who were the executives or their their kind of their social set. Um, and I bet he actually counted them. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be surprised knowing him. He's quite an analyst in that regard. But what what was good was that I mean, it was maybe not so good for some of the older generation people didn't necessarily get it the first time yeah. woody Allen said he went back to watch it because he was chatting with a woman he was associated with who was raving about it a student i think at the time and on that basis he went back to see it and i think a lot of people talked it up to other people and i know yeah. that's about anyway but in terms of actually trying to sell the notion that no no you need to see it another time so but of course then you're doubling up the box office because people are going back yes. paying, um, 
on the basis that someone's told them, no, no, you've got to see it again. And it did really well. They were paranoid, especially because of those walkouts. Apparently, there was a heated debate amongst a number of the people, including Kubrick and his wife, in a hotel room late into the night, the night of the premiere. And they were really in a whole mess to the point where Kubrick lost his voice shouting and screaming about it all. And um, apparently, uh, Christine Kubrick, his wife, um, who he met uh, uh, working on Paths of Glory, by the way. She's doing singing. singing She's the only female character in the whole film yeah yeah and she just sings a song at the end yeah yeah. it's not a digression but we're um but anyway um yeah she she apparently fell asleep exhausted because they've been up all night stressing about it and then she woke up to the radio that had been left on in the morning which had a dj talking about how it's receiving critical acclaim from a number of the audience goers Um, and it's got good numbers going through the door and you know, by the, she was trying to phone her husband to start telling him, look, look, don't worry, this is great. And it took a while to get through. But um, essentially, it, it was a surprise, given the initial reception. It was a surprise hit. Um, and it's gone on to great things. We've got to talk about Hal just a little bit more. We, we yeah. mentioned the IBM thing. So Hal is this, uh, this omnipotent presence on the on the space yes, it's a supercomputer yeah computer who can coordinate and do all sorts of stuff and they talk to him all the calculations yeah. that the astronauts can't yeah. do yeah. a bit like siri and alexa but with extra anchovies yeah and he's obviously like functionally working very well everything's going okay and then they start wondering if there's something wrong with him and the two astronauts who are awake um start to um to, to have a conversation and they take precautions to make sure they're not heard in one of the only places that they could yeah in a capsule and um then there's that scene about the lip reading so how yeah. but essentially they're thinking they've got to manually shut override him and shut him down because something's not right it feels a bit wrong um but for some reason he's got this overriding uh agenda to uh shut them down basically yeah he, he kills one of them he then kills the three cryogenically frozen astronauts yeah. while the other guy's out trying to save his mate and then um Eventually, Dave notices what's happened and uh, attempts to then shut Hal down. And there's this really bizarre scene where he goes into the, you know, right into the heart of the the mainframe of the computer system and starts turning off all these things. And yeah. Hal, who I mentioned has been more emotive than they have, um, seems to be, it's almost like a mercy killing going on. Yeah. Because he's realised he's not going to get the better of this astronaut. And he's now trying to... Um, just talk his way out of it, trying to reason with him. And again, the robotic nature of this astronaut, he's just going about his task and you've got these amazing images of him shutting all these bits down while he's floating in the air. And um, and he's seeing Daisy, Daisy, give me an answer to I'm half crazy. Yeah. The famous old English song. And, and he's been programmed to sing that. He said, oh, I know a song. Shall I sing it to you, Dave? And Dave goes, yeah, sing it to me. To try and preoccupy him and he's singing it and it's slow drone. yeah yes quickly <laughs> um another iconic scene that's one of the few bits i do remember the first yeah. time sorry but an incredible film a hugely influential film yeah. and and we, we should mention um the special photographic effects he won his oscar as you said for that um one of the supervisors the key supervisor was a guy called doug trumbull trumbull yeah, yeah. Who's one of two Trumbulls that um, that uh, Stanley Kubrick worked significantly with? The other being the famous blacklisted from the McCarthyism era, um, uh, Dalton Trumbull, who's a scriptwriter who yeah. worked on Spartacus. We'll talk about that probably at some point later on. But um, yeah, Doug Trumbull 
big up to him. He's American um, special effects photographer, basically, and supervised. Yeah. And he's worked on everything, yeah. yeah. And he, he's brilliant. And it's brilliant uh, visually. It's a stunning film. I much enjoyed it the second time. And if people have only ever seen it once and didn't really engage with it, didn't really like it, I recommend... Yeah, yeah. and you can't have your phone in front of you checking the football scores watching this. It's no. immersive <laughs> cinema. You need, you, need to, you need to go with it, yeah. Um, so Arthur C. Clarke, he wrote three sequel novels to it, one of which was made into a film in 1984, 2010, the year we made Contact. Um, I've not seen that. It's a much more conventional narrative style, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It's got true. one of the same actors, I think, hasn't it? Um, I I believe so, yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's right, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so that's your uh, number four, wasn't it? Cool. So, so can I grab a beer before we do your number four? Oh, yeah, we can do, yeah. Why not? Okay, let's take a short comfort break, slash uh, beer break, slash intermission. And we'll be back after a, uh, well, just a brief moment. Right, oh, okay. Thank you very much. I'm back, I'm back early. I'm on the... Uh... A tried and trusted old friend. I'm on the Sierra Nevada handcrafted pale ale. Lovely. I'm still I on netball. It. I ended up with a big uh, case of it after I was uh, at an away football match and we ended up with too much drink on the way back. Um, even by my standards, that's uh, quite an achievement. So um, anyway, so yes, what we're going to do then, Phil, because time's ticking on very nicely already, um, we are going to count down. Well, I'll give you my number four. Um, we're going to count down our number threes. Maybe I might read out a couple of bits of correspondence at that point. And then we're going to end the episode and you'll then be listening to another episode where we will count down our number twos, number ones, further correspondence and other trivia and bits uh, bits and pieces. That sounds great. Honourable mentions to any other films. Yeah. Uh, which may or may not have missed out in this uh, top five. We'll see. Okay. So my number four is another classic. Uh, it's 1957's Pilot of Glory. Um that's Which, actually my number three. Oh, well, <laughs> this is speeding things along nicely, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let, let me let me just read my bit out first, then, and you can you can join in because you, knowing, knowing you, you've probably got more notes than I have. So, I mean, the the general concept of this, as I said, 1957 film, black and white. Um, after refusing to attack an enemy position, a general, this is a French um, First World War general, yeah. um, accuses the soldiers of cowardice, and their commanding officer must defend them. Um, the futility and the irony of the war in the trenches in world war one is shown as a unit commander in the french army must deal with the mutiny of his men and a glory seeking general after part of his force falls back under fire in an impossible attack now for me the, actually the shades of all quiet on the western front which of course i rated yeah. very highly on our, our last episode films of the yes. 2022 which is about the first world war from a german perspective this one interestingly and i don't know probably as far as i know is uniquely taking the french perspective you've got kurt Douglas. Yeah. It was very un It's Colonel Dax, yeah. It's Colonel Dax. Not very French-looking, uh, but there we go. Um, yeah, he's he's in charge of, of troops. He's he, brilliant in this. Yeah. He is superb in it, yeah. He's charged with going over the top in a futile attempt to gain a hill, I think it is. Yeah. And he's got absolutely no chance. And the, a lot of the troops hold back and don't actually go over at all. And it comes down to a court-martial scenario where they're saying, your, your troops didn't do well enough. He's resisting that notion. And in the end, this this bloodthirsty commander, Colonel, um, says that um, uh, essentially as a punishment, we're going to take, I think it's 10 from every 
one of your yeah it's almost like the sort of roman decimation that they used to do yeah yeah just to sort of set an example to the rest of it yeah Yeah. and it's it's damningly condemnative of um of of the of war the futility of war the bloodthirstiness of war and the audacity and the craziness of the generals the or sorry the the commanders who are barking out these orders while sitting in some luxurious drinking sonser and eating roast the way that that, um, he imparts the um, the orders or or talks through the conversation when he's brought to the office um, Kirk Douglas is brought to the office is just shows the complete detachment from the rest of what's going on and even the court case they're like they're just trying to get it over with before lunch you know (laughs) Yeah, exactly. it. it's, yeah. A, it's a foregone conclusion. Don't worry. And he's trying to legitimately defend his men. You know. Yeah. It's all, so it's based on the novel of the same name by Humphrey Cobb. It's a retelling of the true story of uh, four French soldiers who were executed to, to set an example of the rest of the troops. So it was adapted for the stage by Sidney Howard, who's the scriptwriter, believe it or not, for Gone with the Wind. And yeah. it completely flopped um, as a, as a, um, anti-war scenes alienated audiences but Howard still wanted to to make a film now at that time Kubrick and the killing had failed at the box office but it was a big hit with the critics um, so MGM had hired him to go through their um their slush pile of scripts and and uh, purchase novels to see what he could find in there to to kind of go to go through his next project in true um Kubrick style bear in mind he's still only about 27 or 28 29 by this point um he just turned his nose up at all of them and brought and suggested the book that had been turned down by every other media major studio said i read this when i was like 14 and i thought it was good i want to make this um got hold of the script kirk douglas read it loved it and i think it was still down to kirk douglas that they managed to kind of get the uh get the uh financing in place to be able to make the film yeah Starring, as you obviously mentioned, Kirk Douglas. Also, it's got Ralph Meeker. Uh, you've got Adolphe Menjou, who plays the the the, the, uh, the major boss of the army in the uh, uh, French army. Uh, George McCready. And uh, you've got others like Wayne Morris and Richard Anderson involved and in the past. So well. one of the other actors in it, Timothy Carey, yeah. um, who was also in The Killing. Um, he was also in Ace in the Hole, another Kirk Douglas film that we did. Have you heard about his behaviour on this film? No. Tell me more. So it's, he was he was one of the other um, kind of soldiers that was kind of seen to be uh, that was that was selected to be executed. And if you notice that he's kind of quite major in it, and then towards the end of the film he suddenly suddenly sort of disappears and you don't see him quite as much it's because he got fired during production because he was just trying to like um, draw more attention to his character all the way through and was being really difficult. Um, and the, the final meal. Um, before execution scene took 57 takes and that wasn't because of Kubrick that was because of him just trying to hog the screen um so after he got fired in order to kind of generate more personal publicity for himself he faked his own kidnapping <laughs> oh I love this and I think after that that was the, pretty much the end of, end of his career yeah oh, you, you, you mentioned uh, Adolf Menjou as well so Kubrick, as we said, still in the still in his twenties. Menjou, very veteran French actor, very very experienced. Yeah. Um, they were run, believe it or not, running late for lunch. Everybody wanted to go to lunch. 
you know, they've got a lot of French actors, a lot of British actors. Well, I don't know there's many British actors in this, but they were there, they were, it's all been filmed in Bavaria. Um, Kubrick kept making Menju take the same take over and over and over again. And in the end, Menju went, no, that last one was the right one. We're all going to lunch. <laughs> and to which Kubrick said, no, you're not. <laughs> I want one more take. <laughs> and Menju just lost his temper and went absolutely mad and started shrieking abuse, calling of his family what you would expect. All of this sounds very familiar, both the Kubrick side of things and yeah. French sensibilities. And, and, and kept shouting and shouting. And Kubrick just sat there in complete silence, waiting for him to finish and went, one more take. And Menju went, all right, then. And they did it. And then they went for lunch. As we would expect. <laughs> I mean, this actor's probably 40 years older than him. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't scared of, of working with more senior and more established you could even argue uh, figures, was he? I mean, the, on Spartacus, he had a whole load of yeah. really seasoned actors he was working with when he was only thirty. I think I think he was only twenty eight or twenty nine on this film when yeah. it went well when the release time anyway. So maybe twenty twenty seven when it started. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, he's, he's he's not afraid of of that and, and doing loads and loads of takes. As I said, he works on a fairly low budget per day ratio, so you can kind of afford to do it a bit more than. Um, the likes of Michael Cimino who bankrupt studios uh, doing his films. But um, yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's interesting. He does push uh, the limit to to actors. But you can see he was starting his sort of embryonic phase of what he became yeah. famous for. So by 1957 standards, the battlefield scenery, the shots in this are incredible. You know, yeah. they were, it's all filmed in Bavaria with German police um, being used as extras for the soldiers. So, Kubrick spent over a month setting up a field for the battlefield, making sure it was dug, and then and then playing around with the lighting to see what would look work best on it. A month every day, just messing around with lighting to try and what what would look best for what was essentially a, a really short bit bit of film, couple of minutes, if that, you know, before they'd even filmed anything. But it looks incredible, and I think and a lot of people kind of said because I think they could have made this film possibly in colour and I, I, but I think yeah I don't know if this is intentional but the black and white battlefield scenes in this um they, like they really match the kind of newsreels of earlier sort of wartime footage so sort yeah. of that echoed that back and sort of emphasized it sort of yeah, that people. side on kind of side motion thing don't you i think the camera moves we'll talk about camera more in a minute but generally the camera moves a lot in kubrick films yeah uh, he uses steady cam in an early phase of it in the shining he uses zoom shots a lot in barry linden um, there's obviously like the roving camera stuff around models at 20, uh, 2001 that you mentioned. He, camera movements and position is is always really key to him, being a photographer. And we should also mention he did, uh, and well, in the earlier stages, he did his own cinematography and then eventually people took over. So on The Killing, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, Lassium Brisson or something, who was a, a seasoned cinematographer who was much older than Kubrick. Yeah. Kubrick, there was an anecdote where Kubrick had a, a scene set up and he um, he meticulously p- placed all these things and everything in the right place. And then this much more seasoned cinematographer who was apparently in the top 10 in the world at the time. Yeah. And he, he, he pulled the, the camera position back and said, uh, and Kubrick said, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And he said, well, I'm using a, a 50 millimeter lens or something. And, and apparently it was going to create exactly the same effect. And then Kubrick was saying to him, 
No, because the depth of field's going to go distorted. Some technical detail. Yeah. Right. He wasn't. And he said, put it back where it should be. Yeah. Or, or get off my set. Yeah. But Kubrick did editing in the early days. He did screenwriting on a lot of his films, including this yeah. one. He also um, worked. Uh, I think he was basically was director, writer, and producer on every film from Doctor Strange Love onwards, and yeah. he was director and writer in, in this yeah. case. I think he was director and writer on everything apart from Spartacus, where he was yeah. basically brought in by Kirk Douglas when they sacked the previous guy because of it. And he said, this guy I may pass the glory with, he's who you need doing the battle scenes. Yeah. He was writer and editor on some of the early films, and yeah. he was obviously doing special effects um, work, special effects photography with uh, Doug Trumbull on them. Um, on uh, 2001 as well. Um, but yeah, on this one, he, he scripted with um, Calder William, Jim Thompson, and, and the um, author of the original book, Humphrey Cobb. So yeah, yeah he was involved. He, he's always got a hand of some sort in in the writing. Um, incredible film, incredibly important film. You know, yeah. far, I mean, you look at any of the other World War One films at the time, it's far, far, far bleaker, a far more grown up film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And even if, if you look at All Quiet on the Western Front, I mean, this, in comparison to that, which, as I said, showed the German view, but essentially, you know, the same yeah. sort of thing, you know, in the trenches, what it's really like, this seemed to be so much more hard-hitting, and he really didn't pull his punches on the political messages. Uh, the, oh, no, the, the, this film was banned in France until 1975. Yeah, 20 years. Yeah. Anti-war attitudes made it things more acceptable. It was banned in Spain until 1986 and 1970 in Switzerland. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's mad. It's hard to emphasise enough because I mean, I suppose you've just about you've got the advent of television during the fifties, which changed how cinema going worked. Basically, people didn't go as much once the novelty came in of TV. So you you probably just about got TV in the equation there. But how people saw things, where they saw them, and how much of an influence it had on them has changed in the television era. So this is that's probably straddling the two eras yeah. a little really there, but. It's interesting when you ban films. Again, yeah, we, we all know this. It, may, it just makes people yeah. more. It's but like that Father Ted France, episode where they what? where they get told to told to, you know, on Craggy Island to uh, to stop that uh, to stop that film. People go to watch that film, which means everybody goes to watch it. <laughs> yeah, of course, Father Ted gets a mention film. Well done. Good <laughs> <laughs> work, good work. But yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm interested to know what. The French public of that time might have thought because they'd think, oh, hello, this we don't know what this is, we, it's been banned, so we're never going to find out in intricate detail until it gets unbanned. Um, yeah. there would have been an older school conservative generation perhaps who would have taken a great dislike to it, and it's of course of that ilk that the people making decisions would have come. But I wonder what the younger people of the era, especially you know, we're talking so, what was it? I'll have to ask my in laws, yeah. Yeah, you got the first advent of teenagers and kind of like a more liberalised, free-thinking sensibility on a wider scale. What would what, what the French yeah. have thought? Mm. Anyway, the film was a modest financial su success. Um, it earned Kubrick even wider acclaim and pretty much built his reputation uh, on this. Yeah, yeah. Another, th another thing that, 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 that obviously we're going to talk about a lot this is the sort of first film of his where you really kind of notice the, the the use of sound and music 
um, the score by General um, Gerald Freed, I think. Um, yes. He used a lot of military drums, um, yeah. but he also uses a lot of sound. And again, like he did in 2001, a lack of sounds to sort of build up tension and, and suspense, uh, expertly done. Oh, yeah. Isn't it in 2001 where they've got that avant-garde um, composer and they use his work in the late yeah. sequences where they go through the Stargate towards Jupiter and they couldn't believe he, they were using this. They thought, how would this guy ever get a work in a film? Yeah. Um, but, uh, what's his name? Piet- Pietri or something. I can't remember his name now. I can't remember. Terry? Something, something along those lines. Yeah. He's a Russian guy. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting that um, music, again, features heavily... Um, and a BAFTA nominated for best film, although it didn't yeah, win. No Oscar noms whatsoever. No, again, all the best filmmakers. I think all of his films were too diverse, divisive to kind of get. Somebody else has got in common with Hitchcock, not winning an Oscar. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? One, one, one thing I thought was particularly interesting. So David Simon, the guy who wrote the Wire TV series, yeah, he said that this was one of the major key influences, particularly in the the tribulations of middle management. And how that those people who were, sort of, you know, stuck in between the level between the people doing the work and, and, and the generals at the top and how how much influence they have and how they worry about it. And you can definitely see that. Yeah. And, and also that that's a, a little bit of an interesting parallel with Dr. Strangelove, where you've got the the the, the American generals, their plot. Yeah. Of middle management in that equa- that equivalent equation. Uh, and their, their their role is also kind of damningly. Uh, condemned isn't it <laughs> yeah um anyway we'll get to that i'm sure at some point i've got a feeling that might feature in the top five uh but yeah i i, I love the film it's a brilliant film it's an important film and um it's i've got to be honest i'd never watched this film before a month ago oh right yeah it's wonderful. and and i i i don't know why i just never got around to it um, because it's not one of the big ones that people talk about, and I was no. blown away. I, mean, I think it's the most amongst the most acclaimed, but it's not one of the. the it's not one. It's not normally in the conversations of all the well-known ones. When you look at his films like The Shining, which is a huge example of the horror genre, you've got Doctor Strangelove, which of course is famous for various reasons, and you've got Two Thousand and One for the reasons we talked about, groundbreaking and influential in the sci-fi sector. And you've got Clockwork Orange, which again is really distinctive in its artwork, yeah. stylization, set design, and everything else. Um, and Spartacus, obviously, is a famous epic. Um, all those films stand out in their own right. And probably later on as well, Full Metal Jacket, as well as one of the Vietnam tome of films, which of course came out later than all the other stuff because it, it took so long filming it. I think Hamburg yeah. and the Platoon and everything else had come out in the meantime. But with Pass of Glory, it's not genre wise it's not distinctive as such it's more about the story itself and the more exactly what's yeah. told how it's told that's more the the distinctive feature in this particular film is now i think that's maybe why yeah it's not as famous as a kubrick film oh, I, i've got to be honest i think that's probably my favorite world war one film yeah I've... God, is that another, it's another podcast probably? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we spoke about all quiet on the Western Front. Yes. We've spoken about 1917. The remake, 1917. But yeah, I went into this not really knowing what to expect and I thought it was a brilliant piece of work. Good. And, and and it's a film you can enjoy in first viewing then, obviously, which is not yeah. always a Kubrick trait. So it doesn't nice. have the length of quite a lot of his later films. This is only about an hour and a half, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, Strange Love's about an hour 35. This is um, an hour 28, apparently. Yeah. 
DP. Yeah. So um so, yeah. So a good film and that's that's in at my number four. And my number three. So back well, over to you for your number three. Well, this is fast tracking very quickly, Phil, because my number three it's is 2001. Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've added in my bit already on that, to be honest. I haven't got any more particularly to say on that matter, other than I think every time I watch that, I'm going to enjoy it more. It's weird how much of a long, drawn-out film. I just, well, I just would love to see that in the cinema. Yeah, but, so would I. So there's would I. only so, I mean, there's only so much you can take from it yeah that, that immersive experience i mean you know i'd love to see a kind of imax version of it you know in, in a big screen but i went to the cinema to watch something else on a new release on tuesday and i was chatting to the guy by the counter because i'm going there quite a bit and we were talking about the nature of films and the length of films and he was talking about um Bo is Afraid, which is a recent release, and how he thought yeah. that really dragged. It was far too long and everything. And it's about three hours long or something. Yeah. And I think films that's the guy that did um Hereditary in Midsummer, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I've got both, exactly. both of those. I know you don't like him anyway. Yeah. But, but <laughs> the point is that yeah, films could be I mean, you've said that they might have edited some of those scenes of the primates in 2001. And you're probably right. And that might have cut a good 10 minutes, maybe yeah. 12 minutes out of the film. And yet it felt so much longer when I saw it with these things restored to the uh, to the yeah. edit, that is the case. Uh, so it's, a, it's not so much about the, the length of the film per se. It's about the editing, the framing, the engagement with the story, the direction, and how captivated you are by the film in general. That's what yeah. makes it either too long or not too long. A film could be an hour and 20 minutes long and it could drag on forever. Whereas you could watch a film like um, Spartacus, for example, which is over three, I think it's three hours and 16 minutes. And that feels the right length. I think, yeah. yeah. I, this is assuming you receive the film in the correct conditions. You're not too tired. You're yeah. not too uncomfortable. You're, ideally, you're watching it on a big screen in a cinema. That's comfortable. That yeah. would be your scenario. But, but generally, you're not, you're, not, um, you're not absorbing the film in the wrong uh, environment because somebody was saying about how films deteriorate and you might watch old prints of uh of old films on the cinema and that won't be as good an experience as it should be because the film's deteriorating it's really grainy and starchy. yeah so it does depend on the quality of the film physically the film itself as well um but yeah i've got nothing more to say on 2001 a space odyssey other than I think I, I'm impressed with how much more I've liked it since I first seen it. Yeah, I'm tempted to go and, and read the book. I've got to be honest. I think I'll have to yeah, do that. I'm I mean, a bit of a sci-fi nerd. Yeah, and I'm uh, obviously so, yeah. a, an interesting writer, and I think he's... Yeah, uh, he's, 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 he's be, he's, his best book that I've read by him is called Child's to the End. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I might, I might have to give that one a go. Yeah. Well, actually, one more, one more thing, actually. I mentioned about the lip-reading thing, Arthur C. Clarke, saying he thought... Kubrick got that wrong and then acknowledged afterwards actually Kubrick foresaw yeah. the future. And actually there was one other point he made in an interview I saw where he was talking about um, another technical detail. There's the scene where Dave goes out to try and rescue his mate and there's this arbitrary thing where he, over time he grabs him with this this kind of, you know, this... this um, this ship with this, this mini mini ship with a machine with grips on it grabs him, but then has to let him go in order to try and break through the emergency exit, which how has no uh, jurisdiction yeah. over. So he can get in there, but the notion is exposing yourself to space, as in outer space. Um, you'd immediately you'd explode your head. Would yeah, eyes would pop. Arthur C. Clarke said that's a fiction. It's not the case. 
you would die within about a minute. Yeah, um, you freeze, basically, yeah. Yeah, your eyes would freeze up and go weird, and then you'd quickly die. That's essentially what he's been told would happen. But he said what they did was, obviously, because uh, he hasn't got a helmet. He's left his helmet behind. Yeah. Went into the pod with the intention of going there, grabbing the guy, coming back, going through the normal entrance, which Hal has since blocked yeah. off. So he's had to go through the emergency entrance, and that means being exposed to outer space. So what he, he did, he engineered a scenario where he he was projected through the hatch, uh, bounces off the far wall, comes back to the near the doorway, hopefully doesn't get projected back out, which he doesn't, then grabs hold of the hatch, lever, closes it, and then he can regain stability and, and get, get, get on his way and shut down yeah. power. That's the concept. What they did, they did it. Obviously, it goes side to side. It's projected. But actually, it was a bungee from above. So he, he was oh, bungeeing okay. up. But Arthur C. Clarke said, um, it, it shows him holding his breath while that's happening. I'm not quite sure that's true because you see him hold his breath and then you see the scene where he's projected. But it's not necessarily the case that he was holding yeah. his while he was projected. We only know he's holding his breath until he projected yeah. through. And actually... C. Clark was saying, you'd hold your breath maybe beforehand, but when you're exposed, you shouldn't do that. It would be the worst thing for you. So you, you, the yeah. best thing is to breathe out when you're exposed to outer space, apparently. Oh, uh, okay. But actually, I'm not sure. He was niggling about the details there, but I thought it was kind of well, interesting. They, they seem to have got, yeah, they seem to yeah. have got it right. I mean, as I understand it, a lot of science fiction authors have said, yeah, that's pretty much the gold standard in terms of cinema at that, at that point. Um, it, it's there's nothing any you know even approaching it in terms of accuracy. Yeah, and then depiction of space travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean, just the the looks of things, the, the whole concept. Of course, that era as well. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, in sixties. Uh, space travel was at the foremost of people's minds. There've been space journeys. Uh, pioneering space journeys had occurred yeah. others were planned there's the space race with russia so that's yeah. the whole backdrop to all of this as well which is quite interesting i think there's so much more you can go into on that and um i do like anybody who um portrays a, a potential future as i said it's more like a, a, a future fact rather than a future fiction isn't it yeah of, he's got a lot of stuff right he's maybe not I don't know, probably more than Nostradamus, maybe less than than uh, George Orwell. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle there, yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting stuff. I, I really enjoyed it, yeah. Um, well, that's my number well, three. That's the end of, end of part one then. And um... Yeah. So I think um, we've got a load of correspondence, but because I haven't got that to hand readily enough, I think we'll we'll go into that when we, uh, when we cover. Um, the... I'm curious to see if we've got the same top two. I think we have... And I'm going to predict we have them in the same order. Okay. We shall so soon see. Well, we both had Clockwork Orange at five, didn't we? Yeah. We had 2001 at four and I had Parts of Glory. Then you had the other way around. Three and I had 2003, yeah. So, yeah, we were almost matched completely. It's yeah, probably, interesting. Even closer than Hitchcock. Another similarity, yeah. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> that rounds off the episode. We'll be So stay tuned. Hot on its heels, if you haven't already got it in your uh, in your feed, is the second part of our Kubrick special, where we will be talking through our number twos, number ones, correspondence from listeners, and other bits of trivia and interesting facts and figures. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Phil, thank you for joining me as always. Cheers. And in the best Cut. tradition. Cut. <laughs> <laughs>